0: As we celebrate the birth of Jesus and rejoice in his coming to us, we light the Christ candle. Jesus Christ is our hope, he is our joy, he is love, pure, holy, undying love, and he is our peace.
1: Whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Thanks be to to God for his indescribable gift.
0: On this most holy day, we light our four candles in our Advent wreath, and we are reminded of the hope, love, joy, peace we find in Christ. Now we light the Christ candle and rejoice that the promise of God has been fulfilled in the coming of the baby in a manger. Let's pray. Gracious and mighty God, we celebrate your goodness to us as we join the triumph and the joy of Christmas. As your love has been revealed in all of its fullness, we pray that love may abound in our hearts during this special day. Grant us the Spirit of Christ that we may live in the fullness of his character every day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Christmas everyone. Welcome to our Christmas Eve service here at First Light South Portland Church. Tonight and tomorrow, many of us are going to be spending time with some people in our lives that we call family. And uh, probably all of us um, have at least some people in our lives, maybe extended family members, that are a little odd or strange. Or let's just be honest, a little bit jacked up. Am I right? And they may be on your side of the family. They may be on your spouse's side of the family. And, and you love them. Don't, don't get me wrong. You, you love them. You're, you're just kind of glad um, they don't live with you. And again, we all have them. We all have them. So, you know, please don't point anybody out if they're sitting next to you tonight. And um, in fact, if you don't know who the odd and weird and jacked up people are in your family... Um, it probably means it's you, because we all have them. And if we weren't recording this service, I mean, we could do open mic night on the stage, and you guys could come up here and you could share some stories about the people in your family, and 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 we would hear them and we might smile. Um, but we can't really, you know, we can't really do that. But for the last few weeks in this series, in our our Christmas series called the Christmas Tree, we've shockingly discovered that Jesus had some crazy characters in his family tree as well. See, what we've been doing over the last few weeks in this Christmas series is we've been unpacking, strangely enough, the genealogy or family tree of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew. Because again, there are these four eyewitness accounts of the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus found in the Bible, known as the Gospels. They're the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But only two of the Gospels really give us the Christmas story about the birth of Jesus. I mean, Luke is the big one. That's the one that really gives us that traditional Christmas story of the angel and, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, and, and we're going to kind of hear that Christmas story uh, tomorrow morning on, on Christmas Day. Matthew, I mean, he eventually gets there, but he begins his Christmas story with the genealogy of Jesus. And, and as we kind of discovered, when he gets to the strange character's even kind of the, the, the rated R jacked up stories in Jesus' family tree, instead of skipping over them, ignoring them as, as historians you know, typically would do if they were trying to make someone look good, Matthew decides to do the opposite. He decides to pause and he actually draws our attention to them. And it's such an unusual thing if you actually read this genealogy. It's such a strange thing. And so we started this series by asking this question. And this was our question. Why in the world would Matthew do that? And the answer has been the same every week. It's because they're not just a part of Jesus' story. They're actually the point of Matthew's Christmas story. Because Matthew is about to tell us the story of Jesus. And he's about to introduce an entirely new way for people to look at God. And he's about to introduce this idea that God has invited us to approach him not based on our ability, not based on what we've done, but based on what God has done for us. And this is a very Difficult idea for many, many people to embrace. And so, to prepare people for his unusual message, Matthew kind of goes back and he says, Now, I need you to understand that, yes, you know, there were prophecies about the Messiah, and and yes, Jesus is Jewish, and and yes, he's related to Father Abraham, which, you know, was, you know, the Messiah is supposed to be. But in the genealogy, Matthew also stops and, and he points out all the people all the people who who needed what all of us need in life, which is a little bit of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And and here's the gotcha. Here's here's where we're going with our, our Christmas Eve talk tonight. In this genealogy, Matthew also points out the faults of a person who Jesus is most closely associated with In his genealogy. In other words, he gets to this one person. And when I tell you guys the name of this person tonight, everybody will know him. Everybody will probably know his story, whether you're a church person and you're here tonight or you're not a church person. This is your first time in church. You're probably going to know this person. But when Matthew gets to this one particular character in the family tree of Jesus, instead of pointing out the wonderful things that this guy did. And he's a a famous person in the Bible who did many, many, many wonderful things. Instead of pointing out any of those wonderful things, Matthew slams on the brakes and he forces everyone reading his gospel to pause and to think about this person's greatest sin in their entire life. And again, this guy was famous. He did incredible things, miraculous things for God. But Matthew doesn't write about any of that. Instead, he focuses in on this one season in this guy's life where he was an incredible failure, where out of insecurity and fear, he told a lie and some 80 priests of God were murdered, where, where this guy betrayed one of his most loyal friends in the entire world to the point of having him put to death to cover up the secret. That he had cheated with his buddy's wife. And because of these moral failures, this Bible hero so wounded and destroyed his own family that even his kids later went to war against him. Here's how Matthew begins the genealogy in Matthew 1.1. You don't need to turn there. We're going to look at this guy's story from the Old Testament a little tonight in just a minute. But here it is. Matthew 1.1. We'll put it up on the screens. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. This is the genealogy of the Messiah, the son of David. And actually we know, and Matthew knows, that Jesus wasn't the actual son of David. He was, you know, more like the great, 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 grandson of King David. But right off the top, here is the man in the genealogy most closely associated With Jesus, David. But listen to how Matthew positions David in this genealogy, picking up, going into verse 2. This is the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And we talked about the crazy story of Judah and Tamar from Genesis 38 last Sunday. If you missed that, you can always um, catch it on, on YouTube if you want to. That was our, our Rated R message um, last Sunday. Okay, Continues on, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Many of you know her. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And we're going to talk about Rahab on New Year's Day next Sunday. But her son and daughter-in-law are Boaz and Ruth. And Ruth is actually a real bright spot in the Bible, I mean, she was a very righteous, moral, ethical character in Scripture, but, but we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Um, she wasn't Jewish. She wasn't Jewish, and Matthew points her out. She was an outsider, so Matthew kind of puts a spotlight on the fact that Jesus wasn't a pure blood, that that he was he was a mutt for you Harry Potter fans. He was a mud blood, okay, not a pure blood. Verse five, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And again, Matthew should have said, and Solomon was the father of so-and-so and gone right on. But instead he pauses and he said, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, Matthew Why not point out that David was a little shepherd boy? Why not point out that David beat a lion and a bear? Why not point out that David was a giant killer? He beat Goliath. There's so many wonderful things you could have said about David. But when Matthew gets to David in the genealogy, he says, oh, yeah, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was somebody else's wife. And he surfaces all this junk and sin and dysfunction from a chapter in David's life that David wished he could have gone back in time and done over probably for his entire life. He wished he could have gone back and changed that. Why would Matthew draw our attention to David's biggest failure in life? Well, because again that was the point of the story that he was about to tell. That was the point of Matthew's Christmas story. And so Matthew reminds his audience that the greatest king in the history of Israel was also an imperfect sinner in every sense of the word, a failure as a leader, as a friend, as a father, and as a husband, so tonight, to understand the Christmas story that Matthew is trying to share we 're going to take a few minutes to unpack david 's story found in Second Samuel chapter seven. If you want to read along, you can join us there i 'm going to summarize a lot, but you can even go home and read along. Second Samuel chapter seven, and while you get there, let me kind of give you the backstory if you 're here tonight and you 're not really you know a Bible person, and this is something fascinating to factor into your skepticism if you're trying to figure all of this out and you don't really believe in God and you're not really sure if God is real. The story of David takes place a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And you need to understand that the Bible is not a book. The Bible is actually a collection of ancient manuscripts and letters that tells one story stretched out over thousands of years, And the story of David takes place a 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus, which happened 2,000 years ago. So it's 3,000 years before our time is when this happens. And there's a prophet of God 3,000 years ago named Samuel. And God kind of nudges Samuel and says, I want you to anoint a new king in Israel. Because there was... The first king of Israel was King Saul, and he was psycho Saul and went a little bit crazy. and, And God's like, there's going to be a new king, and I want you to find this new king. And he sends him to a little town, Scripture tells us, named Bethlehem. This is the first mention of Bethlehem in Scripture, and it's not the story of the birth of Jesus. It's a thousand years earlier. And Bethlehem happens to be where a man named Jesse and his sons lived. Not Uncle Jesse, that was the Dukes hazard. hazard. Just want to point that out to you, okay? This Jesse had eight sons. And so Samuel goes down to the town of Bethlehem in search of Jesse's house. And he finds him and he says, Jesse, I would like for you to call all of your boys into the living room because I have a very special message from God to share with your sons. And so Jesse... Calls out Bo and Luke and five other sons. But not his youngest son who's out, you know, taking care of the sheep, the little one. And Samuel looks at the oldest of Jesse's sons. And he thinks to himself, well, he's a big old country boy. Look at him. He looks like a king. Must be him. But internally, God nudges the prophet. And says, nope. It's not him. So he goes on to number two. Same thing. God's like, nope. Not him. And this happens again and again with number three, number four, number five, number six. And finally, Samuel gets through all seven sons. And he starts to think, maybe I'm at the wrong Jesse's house. And so he says to Jesse, you know, this is kind of a strange question. You got a lot of boys here, but do you have any more sons? Jesse says, well, there's, there's a little David, but he's just a little runt. I mean, he's a kid. He's out in the field taking care of our sheep. So Samuel says, can you please go get him? I'll wait. After a little while, you know, David comes in, snot dripping out of his nose, little kid all sweaty and stinky from taking care of sheep. And God nudges Samuel's heart and says, that little kid right there, that's your king. Samuel's like, all right, God, I would have picked Bo or Luke, but whatever, you're God. And he anoints David with oil. And he says, you're going to one day be the king of Israel. David was a little kid. He didn't know what that meant, so he just wiped his nose and ran back out to the sheep. Cool story. You can read it for yourself. Well, years go by, and through a very dramatic, incredible series of events, little David, the shepherd boy, becomes the second king of Israel. And more time goes by, and one day, David is in the royal palace, and he loves God. And, and he looks around, and he thinks to himself, Wow. I am so blessed. Look at this palace that I live in. I'm so well taken care of. And then he looks out the window and he sees this tent known as the tabernacle. And this was the tent where the people essentially believed that God dwelled in a box that they stored in the tent known as the Ark of the Covenant. It was where the Ten Commandments were kept. And if you remember, how many of you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? You guys remember the story, right? The Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments. And and the Israelites, I mean, they carried this box around, the the Ark of the Covenant, wherever they went. And it represented the presence of God going with them. I mean, they knew, you know, in their minds that God was bigger than a box. But it represented God's presence with them. And it was the focal point of their, their worship. But they were kind of a nomadic people until they got to the promised land. And it was, it was kept in a tent. And David thought to himself, and he said, you know, this isn't right. I mean, I'm, I get to live in a palace. I don't think God should have to keep camping. I don't think that's right. I think God needs a house. And so David decides that he is going to build a magnificent temple for God a temple that's going to be worthy of of being considered as a wonder of the world. And he goes to work raising money to build this magnificent temple for God. And at that point, God sends another prophet into David's life with some good news and some not so great news. And this prophet's name was Nathan. Good name if your name happens to be Nathan. Nathan. And here's what happens, picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from tending the flock. Remember when he was a little shepherd boy. And I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men. Think about that for a minute. I mean, I think that passage of scripture shared to David by the prophet Nathan is amazing. 3,000 years ago, a 1,000 years before Jesus, the prophet Nathan tells David, David, God's gonna make your name great. Let me just take a, a survey this Christmas Eve with you guys. How many of you, before you came here tonight, had ever heard of the name King David. Will you raise your hand, being honest tonight? Will you look around the room? I think like every single hand is in the air. So essentially, that promise of God came true, didn't it? 3,000 years later, people all over the world, in many different cultures, know who King David was. That's amazing. That was predicted 3,000 years ago, and it's exactly what happened. What an interesting coincidence if God isn't real. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Meaning that that for generations to come, David, people are going to know about you. They're going to know your name, and you're going to have a son who will be king after you. And that came true too, because he had a son by the name of Solomon, who had become the third king of Israel. Then the prophecy continues, verse 13. He is the one, your son, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. In other words, David, you're not going to get to build my temple in Israel, but your son, Solomon, will. And guess what? Solomon did. Solomon did build that famous one of the seven wonders of the world temple called Solomon's Temple, which is still in Jerusalem today. Those of you who are planning on doing the trip with us uh, to Israel in 2024, uh, if you're not signed up, we got two spots left in our, our trip with 50 people going on it. We'd love for you to be a part of it. But that is still there. Solomon's temple is in Israel. And then the next part is very, very important. This will help explain some of the dilemma that people struggle with about God's judgment and God's love. Right here, verse 14. He said, I will be his father And he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod wielded by human beings with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, he says, David, when you or the people who come after you, your descendants, your kids, your grandkids, your ancestors, the people who follow you, when they disobey me, when they rebel against me, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to punish them because I'm a good father. I'm not going to let that go unnoticed without any consequences. See, All the parents in the room tonight, you guys get this. You guys understand this. Good parents actually care. And they take the time to focus in on their kids, even if that annoys the snot out of their kids. Bad parents don't care and let their kids do whatever they want. Good parents can be annoying because they care and they discipline. Verse 15. Here's the big promise from God. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, the previous king, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God makes an unconditional promise to King David. You can't build the temple, David. But your throne, your family line, your name, your family, your lineage is going to have some eternal consequence, some eternal destination. It's going to be established forever. That's a promise. Then four chapters later in scripture, in the same book of the Bible, David tests God's promise in the most extreme way imaginable. Four chapters later, we're introduced to Bathsheba. And if you know the story, I'm going to condense it to about two minutes for you guys. You can, again, read it for yourself. But David goes up to the roof of his palace one night, and he looks down, and he's watching a woman on her rooftop taking a bath. Because that's what people back then would do. I learned this when I went to Israel seven years ago. What they would do is they would put their bathtubs on top of their homes because they didn't have power and electricity back then. They would let the sun heat the water in that bathtub. And then when they came home from a day's work, they kind of had a warm bath where they could take a bath then in the evening. And David kind of goes to his rooftop and he's checking out the scenery. And he calls a servant and he said, who's that woman over there? And the servant said, oh, that's your general Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. If she was taking a shower, maybe she would have been called Shower Sheba. I, I don't know, okay? And so David said, well, well, where's Uriah? Where's her husband? Oh, he's out fighting in a war for you, David. He's leading your men in battle. And David said, hmm, that's interesting. Well, I'd like to meet his wife. Can you bring her over to me? And well... They wind up doing more than talking. And a few weeks later, she lets David know that she's pregnant. And now David has a mess on his hands. So David makes up a reason for Uriah to be sent home on leave from the battlefield. And he says, Uriah, you've been working so hard. Why don't you take a break and go spend a night with your wife? Why don't you go do that? However, the next morning, he's informed that Uriah didn't go home and spend a night with his wife. Instead, he slept right outside the king's door. And David says, Uriah, why didn't you go home to your wife? Uriah says, how can I go home while my men are fighting on the battlefield? David says, okay, stay one more night. Stay one more night. This time, David gets him good and drunk. And then he says, Uriah, go spend the night with your wife. Once again, David gets up the next morning, discovers Uriah spent the night outside his gate. He says, Uriah, why didn't you go home to your wife? And Uriah says, how can I go to the comfort of my home, to the comfort of my bed with my wife, while my men are bleeding and dying on the battlefield? At which point we would think that God would say, Uriah, David, Uriah, David, think I'm going to go with Uriah. He's the righteous man in the story. Think I'm going to make a change. Uriah is my king. But God had made an unconditional promise to David and those in his family line who would follow. And then David does something unimaginable. I mean, David does something, you know, that's the stuff of Hollywood. David writes a message to the supreme commander on the battlefield, Uriah's boss. And he says, tomorrow in battle, I want you to put Uriah front and center in the front line. Send him out to attack. And while he's in the middle of attacking, I want you to pull everybody else back and leave him exposed. This was a death sentence for Uriah. David seals the note, puts a stamp on it. And then he hands it to Uriah to take to his boss. So Uriah ends up delivering his own death sentence. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so the next day in battle, when Uriah is out in front leading the charge, everyone else is pulled back. And the Bible says that Uriah was such a valiant warrior that he fought the enemy all the way back to the wall of their city. But then he was killed by an archer's arrow. Well, the message gets back to Bathsheba. She mourns the loss of her husband, and David swoops in and marries her. And from his perspective, problem solved. Everything is fine. His sin has successfully been covered up. But God knew. And here's what the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven. 27. It says, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And now God has a decision to make. God has to decide, do I retract my promise to David or is a promise a promise? I said my promise was unconditional. I said my love was unconditional. But in light of these new circumstances, in light of the fact that David has done evil, is it a promise I can go back on? So once again, God sends the very wise Nathan, the prophet, to come to David And he confronts David in a real, incredibly powerful way. He tells David this story about this super rich man who robs a kind, poor man of his one little lamb. This little lamb was like a member of this poor man's family. He loved this little lamb. This little lamb would like sit down at the dinner table with him. It was like a member of his family. And the rich man steals the little lamb one night, kills it, and cooks it for dinner. And he asks David what should be done in this situation. And David is on fire. I mean, he is so mad. He's like, that man is evil. Bring him to me. I will deal with him. I'll end him. And Nathan is like, my king, that man is you. And you can read the account for yourself in the Bible. It is is one of the most powerful stories in the Old Testament. But the Bible says David's heart was broken. He was convicted. And he goes and he falls on the altar of God and he confesses his sins. He says, God, I've sinned before you. I beg you for forgiveness. And God forgives David of his sins, but there's still consequences for his actions. And the consequences of David's sins are absolutely brutal. I mean, his family fell apart. Eventually, his sons would go to war with one another. His favorite son murdered his oldest son and went to war against David. The family was split. The whole kingdom was divided for a time. He had to move out of the palace, and his son humiliated him publicly before the kingdom. And then David's head general kills David's favorite son in battle. And David is completely devastated, grief struck, deep depression. But through all the chaos and bloodshed and consequences, God never withdrew his love or his promise from David. His promise remained unconditional. And even though the consequences of David's sin was brutal, God's promise was eternal. To the point that 990 years later, and this is so amazing, 990 years later, a man from the line of David named Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary made their way back to the city of Bethlehem, now known as the city of and there she gave birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David. Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. Because God keeps his promises. And see, if you're Matthew, a sinner, an ex-tax collector, you know what it means to be forgiven of your sins. And so Matthew, who's about to tell the greatest story ever told, a story about a savior coming into the world to willingly die for all of our sins so that all people on earth could come into a relationship with God, not based on what we've done, but based on what God has done for us. If you're Matthew and that's the story you're about to tell, how could you possibly skip the story of David and Bathsheba? Because this is a story that underscores the incredible truth that when God makes a promise, even the most heinous sin in the world will not force God to go back on his word. And Matthew is about to tell a story about God making a new promise, a promise not just to one individual, but a promise to everyone in the entire world, a promise that would be sealed in blood, but only the blood of one person, God's. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, it established a brand new promise, Between God and us. In the book of Luke, where we find the record of the Christmas story, here's how Luke records it. In Luke 2, verse 10, here's what the angel said I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Guess what? You're part of all the people, not just first century people. Not just Jewish people, all people. How can this be good news for all people? Because God is making a promise to all people. The good people, the people with secrets, the people with a past, the people who don't think God exists, the people who are struggling in life, the people who desperately wish that God does exist and cares. The angel said, I have good news for all people. And so he says this, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Here's what I hope for you. My hope for you is that for the rest of your life, that every Christmas, when you see these verses, when you go to a church service or or you read it in the Bible or you watch Charlie Brown Christmas on TV, I hope that for the rest of your life, when you hear the phrase today in the town of David, that it will be a reminder to you of the promise that God made to a sinner by the name of David and the promise that God has made to you. Today in the town of David, Savior has been born to you. Scripture then tells us suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. God promised you and promised me peace. And the only way for you to have peace with God is for God to remove the obstacle of peace between us and between him. And do you know what the obstacle to peace is? It's sin. It's sin. The reason that some of you don't feel like you have peace with God is you're continuing to try to negotiate around your sin. And we all try to negotiate. We all have our excuses. God, if you even exist, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as Uncle Bob. God, I'm only 22. I didn't know better. God, I was raised in a strict religious home. You don't know what my parents did and put me through. I don't need that in my life anymore. God, if you do this and you show me this and you prove to me this, then I'll believe in you all your interactions with God, negotiate, 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 negotiate. You will never have peace with God as long as you negotiate your sin. The only way to truly have peace with God is for your sins to be removed. And here's the incredible message of Christmas, that Jesus came to remove your sins once and for all. And so Matthew, the tax collector, The sinner wrote, don't tell me how bad you are. Let me tell you the story of the Christmas tree of Jesus. Let me tell you about Judah and Tamar. Let me tell you about Rahab. Let me tell you about David and Bathsheba. Matthew said you can't have peace with God and you can't experience the promise of Christmas until the obstacle of peace, sin, has been removed. And the promise of Christmas is that God has sent his son into the world, God with us, to remove the problem of sin once and for all. So that you can come to God, not based on what you've done or what you haven't done, but based on what God has done for you. And if to that you would say, well, pastor, that would be great if I believed that, but that sounds so one-sided that just sounds too good to be true. That's snake oil. Well, guess what? You're finally starting to understand the amazing message of Christmas. Well, that doesn't seem fair because you don't know what I've done. I mean, I, I don't live my life even thinking about God. I've denied that God even exists for years. If he's real, Why would he ever care about me? Yeah, congrats. You're starting to understand the miracle of Christmas. But whether you're here tonight and you consider yourself a Christian, a non-Christian, some other religion, no religion at all, regardless of what you think or believe or what kind of church you grew up in, as long as you try to negotiate or excuse your sin, you will never, ever, ever in this life, I can promise you, find real peace. Because the promise of Christmas is that peace comes when we fully embrace the promise and the gift of forgiveness, not from our own effort, but through the love and amazing grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The promise of Christmas is peace for all who are willing to embrace the radical idea that salvation is not based on what you've done or what you haven't done, but on what Jesus has done for you. So here's the big question for you on this Christmas Eve. Have you ever made that choice? Have you ever made that choice? Has there ever been a time in your life where you said, God, this is new and I've maybe got, still got my training wheels on, but today I'm going to choose to believe as much as I can possibly believe that when you died for me, you died for all my sins. That when you died, you had me in mind that you paid the price for me, that you made me an unconditional promise of eternal life and a personal relationship with you. And just as you kept your promise to David 3,000 years ago, God, I believe you're a promise keeper who's gonna keep your promise to me. And I wanna love you and live my life in a relationship with you forever. Have you ever made that exchange? If not, I can't think of a better day than Christmas Eve to give you that opportunity. An opportunity to begin to think about God in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with your behavior or consistency or promises, or anything else, but has everything to do with what he has done on your behalf. This is the season that we celebrate the fact that God has drawn near to those who have pulled away. This is the season we celebrate that we never have to negotiate our sin with God. For unto us a child was born, a child who grew to be a Savior, our Savior, Savior of the world. We pray together. Let's pray together, church, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this season. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the peace on earth goodwill towards men that you promised thousands of years ago is a peace that we can still find even to this day. That in spite of the chaos in the world, we can lie in bed at night and breathe a sigh of relief that things are good between us and between you, God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done your son, Jesus. For many of us, things changed this year. For some of us, we placed our faith in Jesus this year. And we might say, you know what, this is the year that it clicked for me. This is the year, 2022, that I became a Christian. For some of you, you might say, you know what, I think I was a Christian when I was younger, but then I drifted. This is a year that I really came back to my faith. This is a year that I really started to understand and I, and I personalized something that maybe my, my mom and dad or my grandma introduced me to. But this year it became personal. For some of you, you, you might say that, <laughs> if I'm being honest, this might be the first time I've ever understood the good news of Christmas. That's not about religion. It's not about what I have to do to earn favor with God because I'll never be good enough. But instead, it's about God's incredible love for me and what he did for me by sending the greatest gift, by sending his son Jesus to be my Savior. And if that's you, if you're in that third category right now, and if God's maybe speaking to your heart right now, you're ready to take a next step a next step into a relationship with God I want to ask you to be bold tonight and I I want to ask you to pray and I want you to pray something very simple and the the words aren't really magical at all It's, it's just you speaking from your heart right now to God and so I want to ask you to pray this you pray along with me, you can use your own words. Would you pray, Heavenly Father? Thank you for loving me. I acknowledge I'm not perfect. I've done some wrong in my life. This Christmas Eve 2022. I want to change the way. That I look at you, God. I no longer am going to come to you based on what I have or haven't done. Today, I want to move my faith off of myself and I want to place it on Jesus. I want Jesus to be my Savior. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. God, thanks for loving me. Thanks for meeting me right where I'm at. I'm sorry I've ignored you. Thanks for not giving up on me. really sure even how this works, but help me, help me to walk in a relationship with you step-by-step, day-by-day, however that looks like, for the rest of my life. I love you, God. Thanks for loving me first. In Jesus' name I pray. our last few minutes, um, I want to give us the opportunity to celebrate again by singing a song that most of you probably know. And and during this song, I want to invite you to take the candle that um, you grabbed from the table when you walked in here today and to take this candle as a symbol of change and, and a reminder of how God changed everything through the Christmas gift of Jesus. And uh, as we sing, we're going to pass the flame of light. And when you get a light on your candle, I encourage you to pass it to some people around you. And we're going to flood this room with light. So let's all stand together and let's get ready to sing. blessings upon you this evening. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this incredible gospel of Matthew, which has come down centuries, millennia, for 2,000 years to be in our hands today, where Matthew was able to to pen these incredible words and even this genealogy to reveal a brand new way of looking at you that, that you are the God who loves us so much, that, that you're the God who changed the way religion was, that it it's no longer about coming to you based on what we have or haven't done, that you flipped it around, That it's based on what you've done for us. That Christmas is the reminder that, that you're the God who loved us enough that you reached out, that you drew close to us, people who had pulled away from you. God, we're so thankful for Christmas. We're so thankful for Jesus. May we never forget the significance of this day and what it means for what we can have, what we can experience with you, not just in this life, but for eternity. We love you. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise tonight. We pray these things in your Son's name, in the name of our Savior, the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you guys. We want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. We want to remind you a couple quick things. Tomorrow morning, if you're able to join us, 10 a.m., we're going to have a very short service, about 35 minutes in the morning. There'll again be cookies, hot cocoa, reading in the Christmas story, we're going to take communion in the We would love for you to be a part if you're able to attend and be a part of that. Also, one last thing I want to share with you, uh, we traditionally do this on Christmas Eve, but on your way out tonight, you'll see some greeters in the back at our our exit doors with some little baskets. And one of the things we do here throughout the year is we have um, an offering called the One in 100, which helps people, families in crisis situations throughout the year, loss of a job. Um, difficulty with loss of uh, housing, things like that. If you're able to contribute to the 1 in 100, that's what those baskets are for. We would love for you to be, a, be able to make a gift to that. You can also do it online, but we wanted to let you know that's what the baskets are for in the, in the back. We do that on Christmas Eve. So God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.